Blog Talk Radio. I'm Leo, and uh, we're going to start off tonight by uh, reading some incredible things to you, some incredible news, incredible crazy things that are happening out there. Yes, drought stick in California, let oil companies inject waste into drinkable water sources. Jeez, can you believe that? What a horrible thing. This is posted by Emily Atkins. Let's see. Oh, I'm looking at a picture with a river. And a drought, but there's a drought, and the drought is crippling California. Uh, it's the worst in state history. The San Francisco Chronicle has a bombshell story showing that California regulators gave oil companies permission to inject chemical-laden wastewater into drinkable water sources underground. The revelation comes as California enters another month of its epic four-year drought which has left some communities pumping out so much groundwater that the land is literally sinking. The state saw almost no rain in January, normally the wettest month of the year. Despite this, the state's oil and gas regulators have been, have been allowing oil companies to dump their waste into clean drinking water sources for years. Well, according to documents uh, reviewed by, by the Chronicle, a large portion of the waste injections happen in Kern County, which, according to the American Lung Association, has the third worst air quality in the country. Kern's population is also disproportionately low-income and non-white compared to other parts of the state. Specifically, the Chronicle found that with the state permission, the oil industry Let's see, just move uh, The oil industry has drilled 171 wastewater injection wells into clean aquifers, and 253 wastewater wells in the aquifers were salty but potentially usable with the treatment. Wastewater from oil and gas drilling can contain chemicals like arsenic and benzene, heavy metals, and radioactive material. Hundreds of billions of gallons of wastewater are disposed by the oil and gas industry every year, many of which are in California, the third highest producing state behind Texas and North Dakota, I guess, of oil. To dispose of the waste by injection into an aquifer, companies must receive an exemption from the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act, though it may be surprising Environmental advocates have long known that oil companies were dumping wastewater into California aquifers, but the Chronicle's discovery showed that the practice was more widespread than advocates had thought. Last year, the Center for Biological Diversity found the existence of nine wastewater injection wells in aquifers that could have been used from drinking water if treated. 
which Chronicle found 171 injection wells and aquifers that were entirely clean. It is shocking, said Patrick Sullivan, a spokesperson for the Center for Biological Diversity. It is beyond belief. As of now, there is no evidence that people have been drinking water contam contaminated by the practice. California state officials told the Chronicle that tests of nearby drinking water wells have so far shown no contamination. But because of the population of the surrounding area, Sullivan said that millions of people could be within the range of pollution. We don't know how many people are getting drinking water from these aquifers. Potentially, there could be millions of people drinking this water, he said. The center is calling on all ongoing wastewater injections to cease. And according to the Chronicle, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, which, current, which apparently helped uncover the practice in the first place, is threatened to seize control of the, regulating, of the regulating of the wells. The state has until February 6th to tell the EPA how it plans to handle the situation. Absolutely amazing, huh? I mean, they could, they could do that and waste this water. Um, There's more, more to this. It says California aquifers are contaminated with billions of gallons of fracking. State and the oil companies obtain drinkable water in Central Valley and fracking water injected into clean aquifers. Now, he's a son of a bitch that, uh, you know, that just has no. People like this have no, no right to, to live. This is the CEO of uh, Nestle's. What does he do? Well, he says that water is not a human right and should be privatized. Exactly, imagine that. Yeah, because he wants the water. Well, yeah, they make a fortune uh, pumping water out of uh, you know. out of the ground and selling it to people. Yeah, My personal feeling is that human resource, those any resources that come to the ground belong to all the people. That's right. They shouldn't be owned by companies, including oil. Yeah. Oh well, somebody's gonna pump it. But so, a former Nestle CEO. Um, claims water is not a human right and should be privatized and controlled. He also states that GMOs have never caused illness despite hundreds of independent studies showing otherwise. So is water a free and basic human right or should all the water on the planet belong to major corporations? Should the poor who cannot afford to pay these said corporations suffer from starvation due to their lack of financial wealth? And according to Peter Brabeck, uh, Lamance, the former CEO and now chairman of the largest food product manufacturer in the world, corporations should own all the water on the planet, and you're not. Uh, and you're not. You're not. Go down. Oh, there's okay. nothing there. Oh, not getting unless you oh, pay. Oh, unless you pay. So. Not getting anything else unless you pay. Yeah, here's the asshole. My name is Peter Pradek. I come from Villa Sikianten and I have been responsible for the Nestle Group, the biggest lifestyle company in the world. I didn't know he was a Nazi. This is the guy who was the head of the Nestle. He was a 65 million dollar company. And with about 200 
effects on the human intestinal tract and gut. Those foods are genetically modified organisms known as GMOs or GEs. There is a scientific research indicating intestinal damage from GMO crude and the article glyphosate suppression of uh, cytochrome 450 uh, enzymes and amino blah, 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 blah. Okay, so Yeah, so anyway. And, and the bottom is, line this is... This is a cereal marketed for, to children and that big, goofy cartoon uh, toucan, which is the uh, bird. Uh, it's yeah. awful what they do. Yeah, and then, and then uh, the toucan incidentally says, follow your nose. It always knows. If you want to follow your own nose to the blatant corruption, you need to go no further than the stench of the fact that this perfectly fine, uh, perfectly fine with the FDA, the USDA, and the EPA those noble guardians of your health. So if you trust them, don't even worry about a little wheat killer in your cereal. If you want to know your own nose, follow it to the blatant corruption that allows this kind of thing. Oh, you just read that. I'm sorry. That was in the wrong paragraph. As Mike Barrett of the Natural Society points out, I guess we know why Kellogg has spent so much money to keep foods containing GMOs from being labeled as such. Yeah. Oh. Boy. That's sick. Oh. That's really sick. There's a there's a thing called the organic prepper. You can go to that. That's a uh, that's a site. It's a full report on the organic prepper. Mm. So that's pretty interesting. Look at that cereal. Ugh. I know. I ate it as a kid. Oh God. Ah. Uh, okay. So let's go general cereal killer junk food fortified. Let's say yeah. Okay. Uh, baby formula is loaded with GMOs. Ah. Avoid these brands. We're going to talk to you about those right now. God, terrible. Yeah, baby formula. Baby formula is loaded with GMO. Avoid these brands. Let's go down. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. A petition is circulating to persuade three of the top infant formula brands in the U.S., Abbott Laboratories, they have Similac, Mead Johnson Nutrition, Amphamil, and Nestle, Gerba Good Start, using genetically modified ingredients in their baby products. Each of these powdered formulas is loaded with corn and soy byproducts along with sugar, which means they are more likely GM in nature in harming children. Several years ago, Natural News warned our readers about these dangerous food products for for infants, focusing specifically on Similac's Go and Grow formula. The product, which is marketed for babies aged 9 to 24 months, claims it contains balanced nutrition for older babies. But as we put it, pointed out the product is nearly half composed of corn syrup solids, that's sugar, with the remaining 50 or so percent composed of soybean oil, soy protein, safflower oil, and more sugar in the form of sucrose. Besides being absolutely an unhealthy product in general based on these ingredients, Simlac Go and Grow is another freak show of GM additives which are particularly harmful to developing children. GMOs have been linked to hormone disruption, gut damage, and other problems that, again, especially in children, can lead to a lifetime of chronic health problems. But Similac isn't alone. 
Practically every major brand of commercial infant formula is mostly composed mostly of corn, soy, and sugar components, each of which is more than likely GM due to the fact that upwards of 90% of the corn, soy, and sugar beet crops planted in the U.S. are GMOs. Oh, for, boy. for the infant that is unable to nurse, I insist upon an organic uh, commercial formula stated uh, pediatrician Michael Perro, uh, Michelle Perro, rather, warning against commercial GMO-laden infant formulas. Because of the toxic effects of herbicides, uh, particularly uh, due to its prolific uh, usage. Glyphosate. Particularly yeah, glyphosate due to its prolific usage. As well as other uh, organophosphates and genetically engineered foods and non-organic commercial formulas, these are not an option for infant feeding. In order to ensure the health of our infants and children, there is no amount of acceptable herbicide or GMO that should be in their diets. Major infant formula, millions defeating GMO labeling. Beyond just poisoning our children, Abbott, Mead, Johnson, and Nestle all want to keep the poisoning a secret. As explained by GMOinside.org, each of these companies spent big bucks fighting California's GMO labeling initiative. Proposition 37, which would have required that infant formulas contain warnings about GMO content. Abbott reportedly spent $334,500 of no on the 37 campaign, while Mead Johnson, which has a much smaller market share, spent 80000 Nestle, an industry leader in commercial infant formula, contributed $1,461,600 to block California from knowing what's the Californians from knowing what's in their food. Combined, these three companies ranked in, uh, raked in about $134 billion in sales in 2012. Boy, that's peanuts they spent to defeat that. Well, it's so easy to buy people off. I mean... It's infuriating that parents in the United States are not even the same assurances, I'm going to say, as citizens in more than 60 other countries, including China, Mexico, and Saudi Arabia, when it comes to GM ingredients. Said Green America President Eliza Gravitz, all parents have a right to healthy food options for their children. In a Green American petition calls on these big three infant formula manufacturers to stop using GMOs, which have never been proven safe for human consumption. The long-term effects of GMOs in humans has never been studied because babies' bodies are already less equipped to deal with processing toxins. It's only logical to stop feeding them untested genetic materials that could lead to permanent health damage. And they have a petition that we could sign. Yeah, and you can access and sign that petition on Green uh, Action greenamerica.org. Or go to this article. Yeah, and the same thing. Uh, it's an Intel Hub book. But, you know, go, go directly to greenamerica.org. Okay. You want to hear a little audio about Sun? Uh, uh, no. Okay. Uh, mafia, medic, medical mafia calling at gunpoint quarantines of citizens who refuse vaccines. Isn't that something? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a... Uh, Uh, federal officials want to order a quarantine for a South Pasadena woman and a grad student whose sister 
recently contacted a case of measles at nearby Disneyland, but she is uh, resisting. Uh, res- I'm sorry, but she is resisting the push because she says she doesn't have the disease. Twenty-six-year-old uh, Yelsa Teleziz's youngest sister, twenty-year-old, four-year-old Mora Teles, was one of more than two dozen confirmed cases of measles recently at the renowned amusement park. But Yelsa is not one of them. The local ABC affiliate, ABC7, reports as of this writing, Yelsa says she feels fine and has no symptoms of the disease. Nevertheless, days after her sister was diagnosed, Yelsa got a call from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and then a visit from the local health department, both of whom sought to convince her to self-quarantine. They were saying, I need to get vaccinated and I need to be quarantined. Otherwise, I'm going to go to jail or something or I'm going to get a misdemeanor. Yelsa told the local ABC affiliate, adding that she decided instead against becoming a prisoner inside her own home, though a quarantine order may be in the offing. I'm just a little upset. Yelsa's mother has come to her daughter's defense. It's not nice when my daughter is threatened like this because she's not even sick. I mean, this is just the measles. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, look what they did with the with the Ebola, right? I didn't even go this far with Ebola. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the, this uh, damn uh, whack nut uh, Nancy Snyderman on NBC, you know, who uh, didn't self quarantine after she supposedly went over to the Ebola land, right? And she was, uh, and and she's back around talking like she knew she knows something. Yeah. Right. She's back on the news. Right, and uh, this Besser guy from ABC, he went over there. He never bothered to quarantine himself, you know. So you know, and these are these are uh, major doctors, and now they're, they're over there trying to get this woman to quarantine herself. They're going to bring her in jail. Yeah, that's pretty damn sick stuff, you know. It really is. So anyway, um, yeah. Is the family received a form from Los Angeles County Department of Health and Services that required for legal intervention. It mentions a home quarantine with no school or work until January 29th. In the end, uh, he also made, uh, may not have much choice. Unfortunately, due to July 2014, President Obama uh, signed an expansion version of the previous executive order as the Ebola outbreak worsened in West Africa revising a list of quarantinable communicable diseases added to the previous orders of 2003 and 2005. So, And here's what it is. Yeah. Severe acute respiratory syndromes, which are diseases that are associated with fever and signs and symptoms of pneumonia or other respiratory illness, are capable of being transmitted from person to person and that either are causing or have the potential to cause a pandemic or upon infection are highly likely to cause mortality or serious morbidity if not properly controlled. Subsection does not apply to influenza. Yeah, and she may have no legal choice. As the Alliance for uh, Natural Health notes in a January 13th post, that order could mean persons may be quarantined by the federal government if they are exposed to certain covered communicable diseases but aren't actually sick. And uh, such quarantines could be carried out via the Public Health Service Act, which allows the government to apprehend and detain individuals based on communicable diseases aimed at the act or named by President 
presidential executive orders, the alliance said. This is a broad power noted by the CDC. Uh, in addition to serving as medical functions, isolation and quarantine also are police power functions uh, derived from the right of the state to take action affecting individuals from the benefit of society. And the federal health agency says in a report on its legal authority. So what? What a crock of crap, man! I tell you, it's just—it's just getting worse and worse, folks. It's it just is getting worse and worse. Why doctors Gupta, Oz, and Besser changed their minds on medical marijuana? Oh. What do you think of that? In what way did they change their mind? They agree with it. They are advocating it. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, Gupta and Dr. Oz and Dr. Richard Besser, uh, what do these three highly visible medical professionals have in common? Sure, they're all legit doctors who are also regularly on television. Gupta on CNN, Oz on his own syndicated show, Besser on ABC's chief health and medical editor. Perhaps more importantly, all three have made recent 180-degree turns and now stand in support of medical marijuana. How did all three of these doctors make such a swift shift in thinking? These doctors' complete turnaround are significant markers in the journey of legalization. Whether it's Gupta publicly apologizing or Blesser flat out saying, I was wrong, these are major reversals from world thought leaders. Remember the last time you acknowledged you were wrong? Imagine being wrong about your professional opinion in front of millions of viewers. <clears throat> Each of these acknowledgments were a big deal in their own right. Together they're a telling, together they're a telling sign. These doctors' stories are a significant part of the greater legalization story, which obviously revolves around a greater public acceptance for marijuana. A look at the changed mind, Sanjay Gupta. In 2009, Gupta wrote a Time article entitled, Why I Would Vote No on Pot. A few years later, it was he was prepping the first weed documentary on CNN. He apologized. I've apologized for some of the earlier reporting because I think we've been terribly and systematically misled in this country for some time, Gupta told his colleague Piers Morgan in August 2013, and I did part of that misleading. He continued his apology tour with an op-ed on, on his CNN website. I apologize because I didn't look hard enough until now. I didn't look far enough. I didn't review papers from smaller labs in other countries doing some remarkable research, and I was too dismissive of a loud chorus of legitimate patients whose systems improved on cannabis. Dr. Oz uh, wasn't always pro-medical marijuana, but he's shown a lot of attention to this subject in his national syndicated talk show. I grew up with most of my generation thinking that marijuana was something Satan was throwing at Americans as a communist plot. Dr. Oz said, on a new episode of Larry King's show, seen above. But I think that most of us have to come around to the belief that marijuana is hugely beneficial when used correctly for medicinal purposes. Oz went on to talk about his issues with certain states' medical marijuana rollouts. It absolutely should be widely available in America. We've created one of those hypocritical paradoxes where in New Jersey, 
where I live, for example, I'm allowed to give you medical marijuana medicinally, uh, but I'm not allowed to buy it. So now that you do, now that uh, now. So now what, what do, do you, you do? do? I have to break the law to follow my doctor's orders. That's like Connecticut. Yeah. You can, well, no, they have a dispensary now. They just don't have any marijuana there. Yeah, they do. Oh. But they're charging, they're charging more for marijuana in a dispensary than they for, and, and it's and it's lower grade, okay? Then you can get on the street. No. Okay, so uh, you know you can buy it on the street for fifty bucks an ounce in some cases, some areas, and and they they want ninety, they want the ninety bucks for a quarter, uh, fifty bucks for a quarter. They want ninety bucks for a quarter at the uh, at the uh, at the dispensary. Plus they add on taxes. All right. So it's like it's it's a ripoff. Nobody wants to buy it there. Doctor you know, Richard. Even if it's legal, they don't want to buy it there. Doctor Richard Bessa, as ABC's chief health and medical editor, editor Bessa came to Colorado for a brief whirlwind of a two-day visit. His goal: report on the early days of legal recreational marijuana for a segment on this week a show I also appeared on. On his flight to Colorado, Bessa thought about how he was truly against legal marijuana. When he landed at the Denver International Airport, he was encountered with compelling arguments from the other side. I'm a parent of two teenage boys. I'm a pediatrician, Bessa said on this week in early February. I'm very concerned about the impact on the developing brain from frequent use. And so I went into this story thinking, there's no way this should be legal. But the more I got into the story, the more I was convinced by arguments around the comparison around alcohol and its dangers and marijuana. As Bessa continued, he passionately made points about marijuana being a safer alternative to alcohol. And it's just not rational that adults don't have the choice of using marijuana, but they do for alcohol. Marijuana is less likely to be addictive, it's less likely to cause car accidents and birth defects, it's less likely to cause domestic violence. So how do you rationally say that it's okay to drink alcohol with that profile, but it's not okay to occasionally use marijuana? I spoke to Besser after the this week taping when he told me, I went into the story feeling that I don't think marijuana should be legalized, but I came out of the story thinking... Actually, I was wrong, and there is a strong case for legalizing marijuana and regulating it to keep it away, but keeping it away from kids. Right? So the interesting thing is, folks, is backing away. You know, they they, they can't they, they can't deny it. If they denied it, they'd be they 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 look like the biggest freaking hypocrites. They're laughing stocks. You know, laughing. Nobody would believe them. But no one, not one of them, had the courage to come out and be on the forefront of getting it to be accepted. Well, Gupta. Gupta was the first guy. Yeah, he was the first guy to say it and said he was sorry. But amazing uh, victory. But that's supposedly. after it was legalized. What I'm it's saying. Some states. Yeah, yeah some but states. I'm saying they didn't jump out into the forefront to, to understand marijuana as a medicinal herb. No. No. Right. All right. Uh, victory. FCC will vote to protect free and open internet. That. Yeah, I don't me too. I don't believe, believe that. that. But it might. All right. Let me go over this article. It says, uh, uh, victory. The FCC is expected to vote in a favor of a free and open Internet and support net neutrality soon, according to numerous sources, including the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Evan Greer, Greer of Fight for the Future spoke 
to U.S. uncut. This is an unqualified victory. A year ago, no pundit, lobbyist, or CEO thought it was possible for regular people to prevail against the entrenched corporate interests. Spread the great news. Isn't that a good idea? I think that's good. I really do think that's a good thing. Um, this is this is something that's been out for. This came out back in the, in 2011, and you can you know, he's read articles since. But this particular article was published by the Guardian, and I believe it was published in yeah March 2011. But it came back out because it's kind of interesting. Revealed U.S. spy operations that manipulates social media. Like it was only Al Qaeda and ISIS that manipulate social media. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I I learned about this back then, where, where everybody who's on Facebook now or anything knows that there are trolls out there, and there are you know people trying to defend Monsanto, defend you know uh, you know you, you, you put down conspiracy theorists and all that kind of stuff, you know. And that's all put out there by, they're all put out there by uh, by trolls, you know, by, by the government and by, uh, you know, the paid, paid off, uh, you know, public. The U.S. military is developing software that will let it secretly manipulate social media sites by using the fake online personas to influence Internet conversations and spread pro-American propaganda. A Californian corporation has been awarded a contract to the United States Central Command uh, CENTCOM, uh, which oversees U.S. armed operations in the Middle East and Central Asia, to develop what is described as an online persona management service that will allow one uh, U.S. serviceman or woman to control up to ten separate identities based all over the world. Oh, <laughs> the project has been likened by web experts to China's attempts to control and restrict free speech on the Internet. Critics are likely to complain that it will allow the U.S. military to create a false consensus online conversation and crowd out unwelcomed opinions and smother commentaries uh, or reports that do not correspond with its own objectives. Well, the discovery that the U.S. military is developing false online personalities known to users of social media as SOCPA <laughs> could also uh, encourage other government, private companies, and non-government organizations same. Contract stipulates that each fake online persona must have a convincing background, history, and supporting detail, and that up to 50 U.S.-based controllers could be able to operate false identities from their workstations without fear of being discovered by sophisticated adversaries. CENTCOM, see, they're even, they're afraid. They, they know that if they throw that shit out there, they're, you know, so they're blocking it, they're putting up sophisticated adversaries, which I've run into some of these A-wipes, okay, and, uh, you know, S-wipes. And I've run into a bunch of them on Facebook uh, who attack my stuff and whatnot. But, they're, they're, you know, but you can always tell who they are, okay, because once you once you kick them in the nuts, all right, they, they, they might fight back at you a little bit. But, you know, you, you know who they are. And you don't even bother with them anymore, you know, and you just delete them out of your friend's thing, you know what I mean, or delete them out of a, uh, delete yourself out of a, out of one of these uh, uh, groups, you know what I mean, discussion groups. 
I mean, you could uh, have you could have because, the because, whole you, know, you yeah. could have the whole internet clogged with these kind of. Yeah, things. that's why you know you can delete these guys and get rid of them and just you know get get out get them out of your your circle, you know, which is one good thing that you can do still on on that you know on on these you can kick people out and get rid of them and block them. All right, you don't want to hear any of that crap. Okay, so anyway, he said none of the interventions with. Uh, St. Tom spokesman Commander Bill Speaks said the technology supports classified blogging activities on foreign language websites to enable CENTCOM to counter uh, violent extremists and enemy propaganda outside the U.S. He said none of the interventions would be in English, as it would be unlawful to address U.S. audiences with such technology, and any English language use of social media of CENTCOM uh, was always clearly attributed. The languages in which the interventions are conducted include Arabic, Farsi, Urdu, and Pashto. CENTCOM said it was not targeting any U.S.-based websites, that's bullshit, in English or any other language, and specifically said it was not targeting Facebook or Twitter. They're lying. Once developed, the software could allow U.S. service personnel working around the clock in one location to respond to emerging online conversations with any number of coordinated messages, blog posts, chat room posts, and other interventions. Details of the contact uh, suggest this location would be MacDill Air Force Base near Tampa, Florida, uh, home of the U.S. Special Operations Command. CENTCOM contracts require uh, controllers, uh, controllers to the provision of one virtual private server located in the United States. The reason I'm reading this is because I, I have been I've been constantly well, clobbered by these guys, you know. And they're all over the country, you know. But when, when you get one visitor or one or, or a small group of visitors, uh, you know, whacking your site with a with a with a thousand or two thousand page views and, you know, continually monitoring your site every day, you know, it's just it's just bizarre and you know they're there. Because, you know, you can see them on your server. But, uh, you know, they're there. They're there, and they're monitoring you, and they're there. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Iceland decided yeah. to do this with the last McDonald's meals ever sold. As the last meal ever sold at McDonald's in Iceland sits on display inside the bus hostel in Reykjavik, the burger and fries purchased in 2009 have yet to become rotten or moldy. Is this a piece of history or a disgusting a reality of what's in our food? After spending over a year in Iceland National Museum, the last McDonald's meal sold in the country will now be going on display at the bus hostel in Reykjavik. The world-famous fast food chain shut down its Iceland locations in 2009, and even after all this time, the meal is sold in the country has still not become rotten or moldy. And after the economic collapse, uh, McDonald's failed to keep customers coming back in Iceland, and company was forced to close their doors in the country. The final day that McDonald's was open in Iceland was October 31st, 2009. And on that day, a man named uh, Horcher Samarsson uh, Smar- purchased a meal as a souvenir. Smarson had no intention on actually eating it, but wanted to hang on to it out of curiosity and because he saw it as a piece of history. 
At his new home in the bus hospital in Reykjavik, the burger and fries sit on a display in front of a webcam where people all over the world can watch its extremely slow decomposition. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, there it is. That's disgusting, isn't it? Recourse to private contractors has strengthened the profit motive for war making and prolonged wars as well. Unlike the citizen soldiers of past era, the mobilized warrior corporations of America's new mercenary moment, the Halliburton KBRs, nearly $40 billion in contracts for the Iraq War alone, the Dynac Corps, $4.1 billion. Can you move that cursor? to train 150,000 Iraqi police and the Blackwater XE Academus, 1.3 billion Iraq alone with boatloads of controversy, have no incentive to demobilize. Like most corporations, their business model is based on profits through growth, and growth is most rapid when wars and preparations for them are favored options in Washington. Freedom isn't free. As popular conservative bumper stickers put it, puts it, and neither is war. My father likes saying, "He who pays the piper calls the tune." And today's mercenary corporations have been calling for a lot of military marches, piping in 138 billion in contracts for Iraq alone. Number two, there's more to that. But yeah, embraces the embrace of the national security state by both. Jimmy Carter was the last president to attempt to exercise any kind of control over national security state. But a former Navy nuclear engineer who had served under the demanding Admiral Rickover, uh, Carter canceled the B-1 bomber and fought for the U.S. foreign policy based in, on human rights. Widely pilloried for pilloried uh, for uh, talking about nuclear war to his young daughter Amy Carter was further attack for being weak on defense. His defeat by Ronald Reagan in 1980 inaugurated 12 years of dominance by Republican presidents that opened the financial floodgates for the Department of Defense. That taught Bill Clinton and the Democratic Leadership Council a lesson when it came to the wisdom of wrapping the nation's security state, national security state, in a welcoming embrace, which they did, however uncomfortably. This expedient turn to the right by Democrats in the Clinton years served as a temporary booster shot when it came to charges of being soft on defense, until Republicans upped the ante by going all in on military crusades in the aftermath of 9-11. Three, support our troops as a substitute for thought. Huh. You've seen them everywhere, support our troops stickers. In fact, the support net so slogan generally means acquiescence when it comes to American-style war. The truth is we've turned the all-volunteer military into something like a foreign legion, deploying it again and again to our distant battle zones and driving it into the underground in wars that amount to strategic folly. 
Instead of admitting their mistakes, American leaders have worked to obscure them by endlessly overpraising our warriors as so many universal heroes. This may solve our collective national conscience, but it's a form of cheap grace that saves no lives and wins no wars. Instead, this country needs to listen more carefully to its troops, especially the war critics, who have risked their lives while fighting overseas. Organizations like Iraq Veterans Against the War and Veterans for Peace are good places to start. And number four, fighting a redacted war. War, like the recent Senate torture report, is uh, redacted in America. The horrors and mistakes are suppressed. Its patriotic whistleblowers are punished, even as the American people are kept in a demobilized state. The act of going to war no longer represents the will of the people, as represented by former formal congressional declarations of war, as the U.S. Constitution demands. Instead, in these years, Americans were told to go to Disney World, as George W. Bush suggested uh, in the wake of 9-11, and keep shopping. They're encouraged to not to pay too much attention to war casualties and costs, especially when those costs involve foreigners with funny-sounding names. After all, they are, as America's sniper Chris Kyle so indelicately put it in his book, just savages. Well, redacted war uh, hides redacted war hides the true cost of a permanent state of killing from the American people, if not from foreign observers. Ignorance and apathy reign, even as a national security state that is essentially a shadow government equates its growth with your safety. Threat inflation. There's nothing new about threat inflation. We saw plenty of it during the Cold War, the non-existent missile and bomber gaps, for example. Fear sells, and we've had quite a dose of it in the 21st century, from ISIS to Ebola. But a more important truth is that fear is a mind killer, a debate stifler. Back in September, for example, Senator Lindsey Graham warned that ISIS and its radical Islamic army was coming to America to kill us all. ISIS, of course, is a regional power with no ability to mount significant operation against the United States. But fear is so commonplace, so effectively stoked in this country, that Americans routinely and wildly exaggerate the threat posed by al-Qaeda or ISIS or the boogeyman du jour. Decades ago, as a young lieutenant in the Air Force, I was hunkered down in Cheyenne Mountain during the Cold War. It was the ultimate citadel come bomb shelter, and those in it were believed to have a 70% likelihood of surviving a 5-megaton nuclear blast. There, not surprisingly, I find myself contemplating the real possibility of thermonuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, a war that would have annihilated life as we knew it, indeed much of the life on our planet, thanks to the phenomenon of nuclear winter. You'll excuse me for not shaking in my boots at the threat of ISIS coming to get me or of the Sharia law coming to my local town hall. With respect to such fears, America needs, as Hillary Clinton said, in an admittedly different context, to grow up here. Defining, number six, is defining the world as a glorified battlefield, a global battlefield, rather. In, uh, in Fortress America, all realms have by now 
become battle spheres. Not only much of the planet, the seas, air, and space, as well as the country's borders and its increasingly up-armored police forces, but the world of thought, the insides of our minds. Think of the 17 intertwined intelligent outfits in the U.S. intelligence community and their ongoing search for information dominance across every mode of human communication, as well as the surveillance of everything. And don't forget the national security state leading role in making cyber war a reality. Indeed, Washington launched the first cyber war in history by deploying the Sputnik computer worm against Iran. And think of all this as a global matrix that rests on war, empowering disaster capitalism and the corporate complexes that have formed around the Pentagon, the Department of Homeland Security, and that intelligence community. A militarized matrix doesn't blink at uh, $1.45 trillion devoted to the F-35, (laughs) a single underperforming jet fighter, nor at projections of $355 billion over the next decade for modernizing the U.S. nuclear arsenal weapons that Barack Obama vowed to abolish in 2009. That's bizarre, huh? And the, not, new the, no- seven, the last one. Uh, the, the new normal in America is war. Yeah. The 9-11 attacks happened more than 13 years ago, which means that no teenagers in America can truly remember a time when the country was at peace. Wartime is the normal. Peace, a fairy tale. What's truly exceptional in the 21st century America is any articulated vision of what a land at peace with itself and other nations might look like. Instead, war, backed by a diet of fear, is the backdrop against which these young have grown to adulthood. It's the background noise of their world, so much a part of their lives that they hardly recognize it for what it is. And that's the most insidious danger of them all. How do we inoculate our children against such a permanent state of war and the war state itself? I have one simple suggestion. Just stop it. All of it. Stop making war a never-ending part of our lives and stop celebrating it. War should be the realm of the extreme of the abnormal. It should be the death of normalcy, not the dreary norm. It's never too soon, America, to enlist that good fight. And that was by uh, uh, Anyway, just thought you'd be interested to know. And uh, let's see, William Astor is this guy's name, Tom Dispatch, hmm. wrote this. That's a good article. And what was the site? Oh, the Nation, the Nation of Change. Nation Change, yeah. It's very good. They, they took it from Tom Dispatch. Yeah. But anyway. Just thought I'd let you know. We've got about nine minutes left, but I, but I want to just, uh, let's see. The State Department is discussing banning alternative media outlets, and that's uh, that's Russian TV. Now, I, you know, uh, this is my just posted. Uh, State Department discusses banning alternative media outlets. I don't like this because we are an alternative media outlet ourselves, and so and an outfit like Russian TV is you know even though it's Russian TV, 
it's really got some interesting, interesting news that you're not going to hear anywhere else, uh, not only around the world, but uh, they expose a lot of the hypocrisy here in this country, here in our country as well. The U.S. State Department has openly discussed shutting down a Russian TV uh, news network, RT. Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland was asked about the idea of shutting the company down at a meeting at the Brookings Institute. She said no, paying lip service to freedom of speech, but citing RT's limited reach as a real reason. Limited reach. <laughs> the incident goes to demonstrate exactly how much censorship exists in the United States. RT broadcasts a narrative that is undoubtedly pro-Russian. Now that the pro-Russian narrative is at odds with the pro-U.S. narrative, the government is willing to openly discuss simply shutting off America's access to the network. Huh. This isn't the first time that RT was targeted by government officials. The chair of the U.S. Broadcasting Board of Governors equated RT to terrorist groups when he said, We are facing a number of challenges from entities like Russia Today, which is out there pushing a point of view. The Islamic State in the Middle East and groups like Boko Haram, they're not, per, they're not promoting Boko Haram. You know, they're not promoting the Islamic State either. You know, it's bullshit. Because why would such a question be asked of a State Department official to begin with? Because the U.S. The State Department is responsible for large portions of America's propaganda efforts. All right. And it says, um, this is the United States of America. We are supposed to have a free press, but if you push a point of view contrary to the government, you're likely to lose your broadcasting license. That's true. And regimes in the past held book burnings to remove unfavorable opinions from circulation. It's true. And the U.S. government doesn't need to be so boorish. They simply remove the book from libraries or evoke the broadcasting license of the outlet that won't read the government script. That is true. <laughs> and true again, you know, and that's how they censor everything, you know. So, anyway, just thought we'd say that. Let's see what's this. Victoria Plus lying leaves RT unable to compete with dynamic, truthful U.S. media. This is funny. America has a tiny, tiny audience in the United States, that according to Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland, who was speaking at the Brookings Institute. Newland was asked about whether or not RT should be shut down. For her part, she said no, then went on to talk about how insignificant RT actually is. The only problem, if RT America is so insignificant, why does the State Department keep talking about it? RT correspondent Gaiane Chechekin reports. Victoria Nolan was asked whether RT ought to be shut down. Jill Doherty, who asked the question, noted that RT is watched a lot in the U.S. and that it is getting a lot of attention. Uh, Victoria Nolan responded by saying that the channel should not be shut down because of freedom of speech in the U.S., but then she went on to say this. We believe in freedom of speech, freedom of media in this country. I think it's, you know, it, it, all you have to do is look at RT's uh, tiny, tiny um, audience in the United States to understand what happens when you broadcast untruths in a media space that is full of dynamic, truthful opinion. Well, about the tiny, tiny audience, global information and measurement company Nielsen said within a year, within last year, RT's weekly audience in seven of the largest U.S. cities has doubled. 
uh, RT has outperformed all other international media in the U.S. According to the study, almost 3 million people in these cities tune in to RT every week, not to mention the fact that RT is the number one news source on YouTube with over 2 billion views. We've been getting a lot of attention, and not just from our viewers. Propaganda bullhorn that is the state-sponsored Russia Today program, has been deployed to promote, actually Russia Today Network, has deployed uh, to promote President Putin's fantasy about what is playing out on the ground. We are in an information war, and we are losing that war. I'll be very blunt in my assessment. The Russians have opened up an English-language network. I've seen it in a few countries, and it's quite uh, instructive. We can't allow ourselves to be outcommunicated by our enemies. Victoria Nolan's comments come just days after the head of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, the agency that oversees U.S. state media, put RT at the top of his challenge list before the Islamic State and Boko Haram. The State Department said they would not put RT in the same category, but RT does present a challenge for the U.S. government. So we are confused. How can RT be a challenge if it has such a tiny, tiny audience? Well, by the way, Victoria Newland, you might remember, made headlines over the summer when talking on a phone conversation. It was recorded about Ukraine and the EU, and she said this. I can't remember if I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman, this morning, he had a new name for the U.N. guy, Robert Seri. Did I write yeah. you that this morning? Yeah, okay. I saw that. He, he's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the U.N. help glue it and, you know, f*** the E.U. That's interesting. Well, that was fascinating, folks. I, you know... I don't know if you watched RT. I do. I've actually even posted some of their uh, broadcasts on my website, lastewshow.org. And, of course, I have been criticized for that by and kind of controlled for that by the, uh, uh, by the, by the powers that be. Uh, there's, a, there's more stuff that I, I wanted to get to, which is... Um, you know, uh, really interesting things. Uh, one one thing that I wanted to talk about quickly, if I can get to it in time, it was the uh, um, the, the uh, what, what the United States did, uh, what the Supreme Court just ordered that people, that police can can get in can go in and search your house without a warrant. There is. Supreme Court rules that seal that cops do not need a warrant to search your home. Imagine that. Yeah, that is unbelievable. They can just walk in. Yep, freedomofthoughtproject.com. Uh, it says, in, yeah, well, this depends on. In another devastating blow to freedom, the Supreme Court ruled Tuesday that police do, don't need a warrant to search uh, your property as long as two occupants disagree about allowing officers to enter, and the resident who refuses uh, access is then arrested, police may enter the residence. So what would they be arrested for? It's for refusing? Refusing, I guess. In another devastating way, it says, as long as two occupants disagree about allowing officers to enter, and the resident who refuses access is then arrested, police may enter the residence. 
So in other words, if you and I mm-hmm. disagree, one says, yeah, come on in. The other says, no, okay, then they can arrest me, hmm. all right? Yeah, and then they can search the property. Okay, instead of adhering to the warrant required, Ginsburg wrote, today's decision tells the police they made they may dodge it, never mind ample uh, time to uh, secure the approval of a neutral magistrate. Um, uh, uh, Tuesday ruling, she added, shrinks to petite size our holding in Georgia versus Randolph. Which was a familiar, similar case the Supreme Court addressed in 2006 in which a domestic violence suspect would not allow police to enter his home, though his wife did offer police consent. As police ultimately entered the home, the court ruled in the case that the the man's refusal while being present in the home should have kept authorities from entering. A a physically present inhabitant's express refusal of consent to a police search of his home is is dispositive as to him, um, regardless of the consent of the fellow occupant, the majority ruled. The majority, led by uh, Alito, yes, uh, uh, said police need not take the time to get a magistrate's approval before entering a home in such cases. But dissenters, led by Justin Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, warned that the decision would erode protections against warrantless home searches. And the court had previously held that such protections were at the very core of the Fourth Amendment and its ban on unreasonable searches and seizures. Mm. According to the AP, Samuel Alito wrote the court's six-to-three decision, holding that an, an occupant uh, may not object to a search when he is not at home. So they could just bust into your house and search. Yeah, it says if he's not home, they can they can go in and search. They can he can't object to it if he's not home. We uh, we therefore hold that an occupant who is absent due to a lawful detention or arrest stands in the same shoes as an occupant who is absent for any other reason. In other words, you have no right. property rights. Yeah. You're a slave, and we can snoop through your personal belongings if we wish. Yep. The implication of such Stasi-esque interpretation of the Fourth Amendment is staggering. This canon will open the door to even more unscrupulous police behavior. They will only need to say that someone may be in danger and now they are justified in ransacking your home, particularly allow for police to choose and enter any home they wish. It is nothing to be downplayed, especially since Justice Ginsburg, one of their own, even stated that this could lead to even more erosion of what's left of the Fourth Amendment. Oh my God! Yeah. So you know what's going to you know what's going to happen with this? Oh, they'll abuse that with Not people they, they don't abuse, like. But you know what's going to happen? They're going to get shot. They're going to start. There's going to be fire. There's going to be shootings of police right in their home. People are going to get fucking. They're going to just start blasting. Well, that's know? why they're moving to take away guns. That's what's going to happen. They're just going to go blast. I, I mean, I don't, know. I don't know. They don't have any right to do it. But you know, you got you got schmucks like Alito, who never, ever, ever, ever in a million years should have ever was qualified for that position. You know, he got in. Roberts got in. Mm-hmm. You have you have Thomas. And he got, uh, and he got, uh, what's that other douche uh, uh, yeah. The one that shot the guy? What? Did he retire? The one that shot, uh, went yeah. duck shooting. No, no, Scalia, he's still there. Yeah. No, Scalia's still there. Um, and it, it 
it wasn't Scalia who shot him. It was uh, it was uh, Cheney. Yeah. Cheney, Cheney shot him, but Cheney was uh, that that whole thing where they went duck hunting. That was when uh, Scalia was good friends with Cheney. Mm-hmm. Uh, ruled that it was that there was that Cheney did not have to disclose the people. Uh, the, the people in the corporations that were involved with the with the energy bill. Yeah. All right. And uh, I mean, God, this we have so been corrupt. so screwed by the Supreme Court. It's just you know, unbelievable. The worst of the worst of the worst. Oh, well, they are. Is They're the, just the worst of the worst. A joke. Yeah. I don't. I don't believe in them at all. Not I've lost all I, my respect for that group. I mean, the Congress, when they the confirmed Thomas, when he was blatantly. Uh, Harasser of women. Oh God, yeah. That that was the end. And of and and a CEO, not a CEO, but a major uh, uh, Monsanto uh, uh, yeah. guy. All right, he worked for Monsanto. I was disgusted with that appointment. And that, that that was the end of the beginning. Yeah. The beginning of the end. Beginning of the end. I it really was. I it really was. was. And, then and, the, and the reason he got in was because they held him up because he was black. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So all it proved to me is the black can be just as corrupt as the white. Oh yeah, yeah. and they the and people. but yet they they that's I believe it was that same court that blocked uh, uh, Bork. Yeah. You know, from the, who was a, who, who was, was qualified? Who was more qualified? You know, far more qualified. Yeah. And, and Thomas was not qualified at all. Yeah. Neither was Alito. Neither was Roberts. Neither was uh, Scalia. They're all were, were all just the worst. Worst, worst, worst people. But, but yeah, anyway, yeah. we're right to the end of our show, and I want to Tomorrow. thank you for listening, and I hope you stay tuned to listen to us tomorrow night. Yeah. And, uh, when we have our union show. It's really, it's really sad. <laughs> it's very sad. But anyway, uh, hope, you, hope you got something out of tonight, and join us tomorrow night. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody.